different situation than what we normally would be for a Sunday morning, so we're actually going to do our afternoon study now, uh, and we will depart at lunch. Some of us for home, some of us for the wild, wild west, uh, but there will be no lunch here, there will be no services following that, so uh, if you've made a plan to be here, I'm thankful that you're here, uh, but we will be done when the second service is over. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 20. Uh, for this event in the Lord's ministry, there are three accounts. Um, so if you're like me and you have a preference, I prefer Dr. Luke's account. I love all of them. Um, but if you want to turn to a specific one, I'll give you the text and then we'll read them. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. And Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Uh, and there are some differences in each account that give us, much like with the rich young ruler, uh, more detail for the same event for which we should be thankful. Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. And this isn't the first time that he's told of this, but he's getting more and more direct and more and more specific each time. So we'll start with Matthew's account, going, I guess, chronologically the way the, the Bible's put together for us. Matthew 20, starting in verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed. And this is the same word as delivered that we see in the other two accounts. He shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Now, this is the, really the first time he mentions being betrayed. He doesn't mention Judas specifically, doesn't mention that it's one of the disciples. But this word betray or to be delivered, it, it gives the connotation that someone close to him, someone with the ability to know where he is and what he's doing, is going to turn him over to this authority, if you want to call it that. But I would use that word very loosely in this sense. Mark 10, uh, Mark 10 verses 32, 33, and 34 says, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. Remember, we're still in the Perean ministry, the, the between lands, the just outside or beyond Jordan lands. So even though it says he's hidden towards Jerusalem, uh, we're hidden towards Flagstaff, but we're not in it. We're still outside of it. And that's where this ministry is, is the Perean ministry. It says, Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the 12 and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. If you're marking what's different between these gospel accounts, the emotions of the disciples that Mark gives us, they're not there in Matthew's account. So that's, I have that underlined in my outline. They're amazed and they're afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. We should note here again, he's talking to the twelve. And he said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered, again, same word as betrayed, unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. No more making allusions to what's coming. He's very specific about what's happening. Probably so much so that they're asking themselves, who is this son of man? I thought you were the son of man. And if you're the son of God, how could these things be? And we shouldn't scoff at that. This is a very real struggle. They're afraid. They're amazed. This is God. How could he be betrayed? This is God. How could he be mocked? This is God. How should he be killed? We see it every day in our own lives. When we put things before God, we're doing the same thing. 
we're mocking, we're rebelling, we're scoffing. Yeah, yeah, it's God, but certainly he'd understand I have other things to do. Luke's account, Luke 18, starting in verse 31. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Worded a little differently, but it's Dr. Luke's account makes it clear that the fulfilling of scriptures is at hand. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated. This is uh, a phrase that's not in the other uh, accounts. It means to be insolent or to behave insolently, wantonly or outrageously, to be spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they, should, and they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. This last phrase is original to, to Luke's account as well, but it speaks to the emotions that Mark lays out, that they're amazed and afraid. They, they don't know what to do with the truth that they're being given here. We're about five events away from the closing events of the Lord's ministry. We should notice here how direct he is with the 12 disciples. He pulls the 12 aside. He's speaking directly to them. Not that they completely handle what he's giving them, but no one else could even attempt to handle what he is giving them. And he is uh, he's so direct with them, separately from the other followers, those who are still learning how to follow that we've seen from the previous chapters. This is really uh, not the closing of the chapter on discipleship, but kind of the drawing away from that subject matter for a moment. He's been teaching so fervently on what it is to follow him. And we should add that what we just read in those eight verses of Psalm 119 makes it very clear. We're given faith enough to be saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but do we have faith enough to follow? And what we just read in those, verse eight, uh, those eight verses of Psalm 119 are very, very important because it is the believer saying, I have sworn, I will, do th- I will follow him. I will pursue after him. And in 2024, we're a little weak in that, I think, if we're honest. It's not a natural thing. I'm saved and therefore I'm hooked to the train and the engine's leading. No, 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 no. There's a lot of temptations throughout the week. There's a lot of temptations in our life to jump the track, is there not? We're not just being drugged through Christianity, beloved. And we're not just fans of who the Lord Jesus Christ says he is. Are we following him? Are we putting everything else aside in our minds, in our hearts, in our homes, in our lives and saying, I will follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's what we just spent two months talking about is discipleship. That's what he just spent the last 12 lessons. I I, I broke it down when I was recording those messages from the summer. Literally since November 1st, we've been teaching on what discipleship is. It was kind of important. That's months of his ministry that we covered in that time as well. And he's still teaching on what it was to truly follow him. Because it's not what our flesh thinks it is. It's way more. What Jesus had to say was for the disciples. He was to suffer those things for them. He was to rise again the third day for them, for us. What he's saying here is for us. It's not for anyone else. This message, hear me, is not for the ones next to you, behind you, or in front of you. It's for all of you. It's for all that are born again. He was going to be spitefully entreated, outrageously treated for me. He was going to suffer and die for me. And if he didn't, 
then I'm not His. And He was going to rise again on the third day, not by the calling of Lazarus outside the tomb, but by His own ability, His own power, His own will for me. Or I'm not born again and I will not see the kingdom of heaven. This is serious business. These twelve, it doesn't say that they were necessarily doubting and in disbelief. They're amazed. They're frightened. And I think it's okay that we would be too, even now. This is monumental. You realize the entire universe sort of stops at this thing because God spoke the universe into existence. And God is sending His own Son to the cross to die. Not for all of the universe. Not for all of the animal kingdom. Not for the earth itself. But for man that was made in His image. And not for all man, but the man that He has chosen. Of man He chose or elected a few. And everything pointed to this moment. And everything since has pointed back to it. They were amazed. They were afraid. They're living in the day of the Messiah. And by the way, there's only 12 of them. Not 12 tribes of billions of people. 12 disciples that he pulls aside to tell this truth to. Remember in the last lesson we dealt with Peter's questions regarding the cost that they were uh, that they themselves had given so far. Here they're pulled aside for the Lord to offer the next part of the conversation. Consider the price the elect of God requires of me. This is the same same conversation. This is just a few minutes later. It's the next lesson for us, but it's not days away from what had previously happened. Peter said, what, what shall await us who have given up so much? And John and James say, I want the right hand and the left hand. And Jesus says, consider the cost of God for His elect. Consider for just a moment that He didn't skip that day. He wasn't late that day. He wasn't distracted by that Super Bowl farce of last week he was there and he was there for his entire ministry when he wasn't with the 12 he was on the Mount of Olives praying that's a lot to take in we who are so distracted beloved you might think I'm preaching at you but I'm about to take a vacation I don't do that lightly in fact I've never done it not with this family did it with my mom and dad that was the last time I don't know that we look at it the same or the way that we should, but I'm already repenting that I won't be here for Wednesday night. That weighs heavy on me. What if the Lord comes? Consider the price the elect of God requires of me, Jesus seems to say. And this was still only the beginning of this conversation. The beginning of the reality of what He's about to go into Jerusalem and suffer. And what is he going to ask his disciples to do? You stay out here in the Perean lands while I go into Jerusalem and die? No, he says, come with me. Soon he's going to beg for them to stay awake. He's going to say, consider staying awake. Pray, watch. This is Christ's third announcement of the cross to his disciples. Matthew 16, verse 21, we read, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go on 
to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. The next chapter, Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, we read, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. You see how their emotions changed. They're exceeding sorry. Now they're amazed and afraid. The first time he spoke of the cross, Peter rebuked him. And on this current occasion, the mother of James and John came with a selfish prayer. How slow we are to, get, to grasp the message of the cross. That we would linger on a thought of asking more of Him. Consider the cost of the Lord Jesus Christ for His elect. That's steep. How about that right hand? And that left hand? How about you pay my bills? Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask Seek Knock. He's encouraged us to. But we shouldn't ask Seek Knock without considering the cost He's already paid. Without considering who He is. And who we are. Shall we only suffer good things? Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know, a sacrifice is giving up of something. The, the Levitical sacrifices was giving up the best lamb, free of blemish, free of bruises, free, free of imperfections. The shepherd would have said, I'd really like to keep that lamb. She's a good one. She might breed good ones because she's a good one. I'd really like to hold on to this one. But the sacrifice was to cost them something. You know, when Abraham went up in, in, in Genesis, Genesis 22, I believe, he didn't get to take Ishmael and sacrifice him. You know, that time with Hagar, that was, that was troublesome. No, he had to take Isaac up, his only beloved son, the son of promise from God himself. He had to take him up and prepare the sacrifice. And Abraham in his own mind had to know that his son was as good as dead. Otherwise, this wasn't a sacrifice. He had faith that God could, but he didn't know for sure if God would. He had to go through it all. It had to cost him something. He had to have a heart of contrition, a heart pierced. Think of uh, Onesimus there in Philemon, who's a servant. And the law of the servant was that uh, at some point their ears would be pierced. They could choose to stay, but they were pierced. It cost them something. There was a mark upon them that they were a servant. Abraham had to suffer. He had to be pierced. He had, had to cost him something. For the Lord Jesus is going to do the same thing that we just read in the text. What's most confounding to me is that we get to call ourselves Christian and live our lives as though it cost us nothing to be one. Those difficult times that Brother Charlie talked about, I almost long for them, that I might serve as I should. Because there's too many hours when I complain and whine and cry because life's uncomfortable. Uncomfortable wouldn't even touch what the Lord was about to experience in Jerusalem. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I don't think the good, acceptable, perfect will of God is that we only think of Him when it's convenient. 
Can we be the proof of the will of God to a lost and dying world if we've never, in fact, lost or died unto anything? If we don't see Christ pictured in our own lives, is He involved in them? It's here in which we begin to learn that the cross must come before the crown. There's no other way. Satan was tempted already of Satan, or Jesus was tempted already of Satan to go ahead and just take the crown, forego the cross. He knew what was coming. He knew it was not a good thing. The demons knew it was not a good thing that the Son of God Himself was on the earth rebuking them. But man scoffed at the Lord God Jesus. Demons themselves said, it's not our time yet. Leave us be. Satan said, I urge you to take the crown. Forgo the cross. And man said, this, this man's not God. This man's not the Messiah. He's a blasphemer is what he is. The Sanhedrin took up stones against God. And so do we. The selfish ambition of James and John rebuked. This is something I've been mentioning for a while. We're going to take a look at it now. We'll start in Matthew's account, but Matthew and Mark both parallel this account. Uh, I wonder why John didn't. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons. I have this underlined if you're looking at the outline because it's phrased differently in Mark, and we'll see that in just a moment. The mother of Zebedee's children with her sons worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? Now before we go any further, remember everything that's happened so far. Peter said, What about us? What what about what we've given up? What's awaiting us in the kingdom? Jesus says what's awaiting him in Jerusalem. And then this happens. She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And that pronoun they is very important. We're going to come back to, to this in a moment, but if you want to mark it, you can. They say we are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom. John Mark's parallel to this is in Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. And we're very fortunate right now, a lot of these events are all happening chronologically through their accounts too. It doesn't always work this way. Uh, but if you were just in Mark, it's the next set of verses. Mark 10, verse 35. And, and in Matthew, it said, the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons. Here it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him. 
Now, a lot of commentators say that the reason it's worded the way that it is is because it's actually their mother who came up with the idea that they should ask this thing. That by faith they're encouraged to ask of anything and that it's actually her question coming from their lips. I'm going to leave it where Scripture is, but you interpret it how you would like to. Zebedee is not here, and we'll deal with that in a minute. They say, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. You know, we probably think what an arrogant thing to state before the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably just been a few minutes since we did it, though. Probably a few minutes later from now, we'll do it again. This is the heart of man. This isn't just the sons of thunder. This is the heart of man. We treat Jesus like a whipping post, like a genie in a bottle in which we should just ask and desire and poof, there it is. He's the God of the universe. We didn't plead for him to breathe life into man and create the earth. He will do what his will says he will do and nothing more. Amen. We, if we are sworn to follow, should understand his will. We shouldn't be asking to miss if we truly understand who this is. If we truly have a heart to know who God is, our questions will line up better with his will. Jesus, instead of calling down fire, says, what would ye that I should do for you? Oh, the long-suffering. And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on the right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what ye ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can and Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized, with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him, and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever you, uh, of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. What do you think is happening here? This might be the saddest moment for the first church between the, these last three or four studies that we've seen so far. The devil is seeking to sift you like wheat, Peter. And that's what he's doing. Simon Peter says, well, what great things wait for us? Jesus says, death waits for me. Spitefully being entreated waits for me. Suffering humiliated death waits for me but I'll rise again for you and then they ask for great seats and probably even more discouraging the ten respond in such a negative way we might think well they should James and John were way out of line would you act that way if David and David were out of line and Charlie and Isaac and I just rose up and aggression against them of course not you'd say well Jesus said to forgive he did, didn't he? 
He said that about seven lessons ago. These guys have already heard that lesson. And yet these ten were angry with those two. It's not because they weren't taught well, right? The shepherd fed them. They were with a great physician who was caring for them. It's because there was room for the devil. Sin was at the door. You see how even the church that was closest to Jesus was beginning to come apart because the devil had a voice? Beloved, we're not even talking about Judas Iscariot yet. We're talking about uh, the, the first one was Simon Peter of the inner circle. Do you remember who the other two are of the inner circle of Jesus Christ? Devil, in a sense, is showing off, isn't he? He didn't go after little James. He didn't go after the zealot. He didn't bring Judas Iscariot to the forefront yet. He took the three closest to Christ, Peter, James, and John, and flipped it. He said, what about you? See, that's the way the devil works. That's what he did with Eve. What about you? Shall you surely die? He says that. He whispers that in the night to the three closest to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they cave. And they were following him physically. They had learned firsthand what it meant to be a disciple for quite a while now. And yet, what's in it for you was all it took. Are we stronger than them? Do we just know more because we're modern that we wouldn't cave to such things? They didn't have television and cell phones. They didn't have the whisper of the devil and loud music around them at all times. They had Jesus around them at all times. And still the devil says, what about you? And it works. Like Achan of old. I gotta have it. It's right there. What about me? I should deserve something. The Lord brought the victory, but I'm down here in the trenches. I'm doing a ton of work. Shouldn't I get something out of it? Should you? The Lord closes this lesson with a very clear uh, point. What do you deserve? We're going to go to Romans 5 for our main message. If, if you don't know the answer to that question, what do you deserve? Eternity in hell is what I deserve. I don't deserve to know his name, to pronounce his name, to speak his name. I don't deserve any of these things. I don't deserve any good thing, and I will never work it off. And as soon as we lose that mindset, what about you? Starts to take root. I do not deserve a thing. I deserve to be struck down years ago. My entire family line, my grandfather a murderer, a great uncle a molester, me a thief, and so on and so on and so on. I do not deserve to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes it a whole lot easier to be humble in service, our reasonable service, Romans 12, 1 through 2 that we just read, when I understand that I don't deserve any of the blessings of this book, but all of the plagues. We see first and foremost, once again, there's mention of the cup. If you recall from our lessons through Genesis, we talked about the cup. There in particular was a silver cup, picturing God's will. It's no different here. Mark 14, verse 36, this cup will come up again. And Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. There, Nevertheless, 
Not that I will, but that what thou wilt. And John 18, 11, Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword unto thy, into thy sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Notice from these future references of this cup, it's a real, tangible cup to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a fictitious, oh, that's the Lord's will that we can sometimes throw around. It's real. It's a real cup. And uh uh-oh, it's in my bag. There's something that God requires of me. There's something that needs to be done. It's described as a needful burden. It's similar with the baptism that's being referenced here. He references it also in Luke 12, verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, Jesus says, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? What pride that James and John thought that they could drink his cup and experience his baptism. However, James would be the first of the twelve to be martyred. In Acts 12, verses 1 through 2, we read, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex captain or, or to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And John would experience Roman persecution at the end of his long life. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. We read, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus used this embarrassing event that from our text clearly captured the attention of the remaining ten as an opportunity to teach his disciples once again the importance of humble service in the name of Jesus. In what name do we serve? Jesus. I don't pastor in the name Joseph Sitters to any acclaim of my own, to any credit of my own. I minister in this part because it's what I've been called to do, and I do it in the name of Jesus. We're to do all things in the name of Jesus. <coughs> Colossians 3, beginning to end, makes it clear that everything we should, that we do should be as if it is directly unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That eliminates dirty dealings. The last verse there in verse 45 of Mark's account is a key verse in Mark's entire gospel that summarizes the entire book. Christ came in chapter 1, He ministered in chapters 2 through chapter 13. He gave his life as a ransom in chapter 14, 15, and 16. If you were just looking at that one gospel account, John Mark, it's all spelled out right there in that one verse. It's good for a mother to want good, godly roles for her children, but once again, it is of the utmost importance that our desires be paced behind God's will. Well, pastor, is there any example of a mother wanting so badly something good for her children that ill came of it? Yeah, Isaac and Rebecca. Jesus responds to James and John, not to their mother. He doesn't call for Zebedee to be brought forth. He responds to James and John. In Mark's account, we see this question only coming from the brothers. We don't even see the mention of the mother. We literally hear these brothers, the son of their father, Zebedee. It's actually to Zebedee's shame that that he as their father is referenced in both accounts. 
She's referenced in one. He's the head of the household. He's called to teach and lead better than this. We might say, well, pastor, that's harsh. That's God's will. It's for the man to be the man of the house, to lead his home. We might say we have strong-willed women or we have to work all the time and so on and so forth. That's fine. Save it for the judgment because he'll ask of you, Dad, how did you lead your home? And he'll already know. Well, she overpowered me and I just couldn't. You know, how's God going to respond to that? He knows what he made. He knows what he made them for. Jesus we can see the truth of what James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes about in the remaining verses here. Consider James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is not the other son of thunder. This is the half-brother of Jesus. James 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Fathers, teach your children to A-S-K, ask, seek, knock. And for whom it is they are to ask it from. But also teach them the good questions in which they are to ask. Acts chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, we read, Who art thou, Lord? That's a good question. That's a great question. Who art thou, Lord? Saul is asking this question. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's another great question. Have you ever asked that question? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you already know the answer to that first question. You ought to ask the second. What would you have me to do? Not as the pastor right and expecting this of me. My expectations are not greater than God's. But ask, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? He called you. I didn't. He called you. What does he have for you to do? Paul even teaches us there that uh, how it is that we should ask. Consider Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1-7. through seven. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifices of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be haste to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities, but fear thou God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. That's how you are to pray. Oh, pastor, what about the Our Father? Yeah, 
Analyze it against Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. He wasn't teaching us a prayer to recite, but he most definitely was modeling this exact way in which he had for us to pray. Fear thou God. Once again, we have an assessment from Jesus on the situation in our text. Uh, looking again at James chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Our text says when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. And we see that James was right. Selfishness on the part of one believer can cause trouble in the lives of others, and almost always does. You don't live unto an island. You are not separate from the church in such a way that how you live doesn't impact the whole. You are a body fitly joined together by the parts to make one whole. The truly great person is one who serves others. Paul said it is like this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. <laughs> let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, which he's foretelling of in our text. Paul says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. To exercise lordship as the people of the world do is foreign to the spirit of the Christian life. We don't have lordship to exercise. While Christian leaders are to shepherd the flock, they are not to govern in self-will and pride, but humbly as under-shepherds. The very title points that there's one over, there's one larger, of whose shoes I'm not fit to latch it. Let's close with 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Simon Peter knew a thing or two about feeding the sheep. Remember the intense conversation he had with Jesus. Do you love me? Who art thou, Lord? What would thou have me to do? Do you love me? Simon Peter says, you know that I do. Then this is what I would have for you to do. Feed my sheep. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory 
that fadeth not away. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. We ask, Lord, that you be glorified, praised, and honored. Humble our hearts, Father, that we see you in a proper perspective, that we see our place in things, that we understand, Lord, that we are at your mercy, that on our own we have no mercy. We have no ability to stand. We have no inheritance, no earnings, no wages but death. But in you, Father, we are justified. In you, we are established on firm ground. Help us to appreciate this foundation. Help us to appreciate its firmness and ability to withstand for so long. And come soon, Lord. Lord, we love you. We long for your presence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.